recorded live. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. Once again, you are listening to the VMware Communities Roundtable Podcast. This is podcast number 394. My name is Eric Nelson, and with me today, my co-host, John White. John, how are you doing? Doing really well, and this is really embarrassing. Um, we've gotten hundreds and thousands of emails uh, demanding my return. It's it really was unnecessary for you to print them out and, and bring them to this room. <laughs> Big stack. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, but, you know, I wanted you to feel welcome. And uh, and, and now that you're back, it's, it's great. Uh, I can never <laughs> go on any more customer visits or do any of your day job ever again. Yeah. Wednesday noon in Violet. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and it feels like a round table today because we're actually – out of our studio, you know, in the room adjacent to it because uh, we've been locked out and we have to find a key. So if we're a little bit hollow sounding, it's because we're all talking into an iPhone right now, right? So it is a round table again, um, so it should be, should be fun. Great to have you back in the room. Today we're going to go over vSAN, the native encryption, with Sumit Lahiri. I don't, I'm going to massacre your name, but Sumit is on the call. So Sumit, thanks for joining. Uh, can't wait to get to you. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. Happy to be yes. here. Yep. Um, Sumit is a senior product manager, works on the vSAN core software offerings, and so should be good to drill down on some of the native security encryption stuff that's out there now with the latest release, so we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, we'll do a little bit of the news first and uh, do a couple announcements and make sure everybody's in tune with what's happening. So first thing we want to say is uh, VMworld's obviously coming up. They're starting to do a push for registration now. So if you're you're interested in uh, going to VMworld, now's the time to get it uh, registered. Don't forget there's Europe and U.S. and they're back to back this year. Um, U.S. is earlier. It's late August, like the 28th, 29th. It's there. Then uh, two weeks later, or a week and a half later, it's it's VMworld Europe. So they're they're pushing for reg. Also, the Europe Europe has uh, August off. If you're aware of how Europe cycles, a lot of big vacations in Europe throughout August. So we're trying to get the word out that it's early this year. Don't come back and and then run your normal get regged later. You might need to get regged before you go on your month long vacation in Europe. Wait, is that is that right? They have the entire month of August off for most of Europe. Yeah, most of most of Europe does take uh, yeah the August off. It's a big. A big tradition. Do we do internal transfers? Is that something that that I could apply for? Or yeah, sure. I'm okay. sure that I'm sure there's plenty of opportunity. You can go over there. They love to have, um, spend some time in Europe. You'll be amazed that the uh, tax rate goes up by one twelfth, and so you you pay in taxes to have uh, that 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 time to relax and enjoy yourself. Um, so just be aware of that. Okay. The, All right. The grass is, is green over there, but I don't know if it's any greener or not. But um, <laughs> So that's going to impact um, when the reg cycle is. We're going to be doing some social out in the social channels to the experts. Try to, you know, let everybody know that reg has to move. Uh, we're trying to pull reg in for Europe and, and, and do that. So that's happening. Uh, other thing that's happening is we're doing the VMTN Tech Talk call for papers for the B Brown Tech Talks uh, in the VMTN booth this year. Uh, we're giving away some passes. I think we've gotten like 70 submissions oh, for wow. talks, so that's, that's good. I, uh, between U.S. and Europe, we have um, maybe 150 slots. Uh, so we've almost filled up the U.S. You know, slots. You can always submit, and we'll, we'll throw you in the queue and look and see if we can fit you in 
thanks to everybody that submitted. Not everybody checked the I need a, a, a badge, which was fantastic of the 70 that we got submitted. We only got like 20 that actually need a pass. And so that's right within our budget. So we're really <laughs> happy about that. So thanks and kudos to everybody that submitted a talk that doesn't need a pass. We appreciate that to be able to allocate to people that really do need a pass to come do the talk. So that's looking good. Reg is opening up in a couple weeks. I don't know the exact date on that, so pay attention. Watch your email. When Reg opens up, uh, the calendar content calendar is already public. Reg opens up. You got to get into Reg and get your sessions before they they, cool, they, uh, they fill up. We are also putting in the tech sessions uh, in Session Builder this year. So the B Brown Bag tech sessions will be in there. You can register for those, and we're going to put them in blocks of an hour. So even though they're 15 or 12 minute talks or 28-minute talks, there's two different styles. We'll bundle them together by topic, so you can reg for a whole hour in Schedule Builder and come hang out in the community and you know, get some good community content. I was really excited to hear about that, because I think that it's, it's a lot easier to, to forget about those sessions and have them drop off your calendar if it's not in Schedule Builder. But now that it's in Schedule Builder, you can add it right in, and it, boom, it's right in front of your face. You know, there's a really good app every year it seems to get yeah. better and better for VMworld, so it helps out. And it's the right thing for the people that spend the time building the talks, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. To, to get people to come watch, right? And and we, we live stream the stuff as well, but it's just great to have audience. And we did it in Europe two years ago, and we basically had a theater full, right? Oh, we, wow. uh, we really need to try to get people to submit their talks early enough. It was easy to do in Europe because we had all the talks, you know, in the U.S., gave us a month to get them in Schedule Builder. This year we had to actually do this call for tech papers early enough that we could get them all submitted, get them in the queue, and get them in schedule building. Now you get people showing up, and then allocate some budget for some passes if, if we need to. So that worked out well. So that's happening. And then the final announcement I have before we get to submit is uh, we have a new member of the community team, Elsa Mayer, which we have in the in the community roundtable studio right now, or the studio next to studio. So Elsa, uh, welcome to the, 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 the podcast. You've joined our team to work on the blogger program. Yep, I'm really excited to be here and uh, reconnect with the blogger program a little bit. So thank you for having me. I know that you did some work with Amazon on uh, some blogs that they did. You spent time doing work up there too, right? Yep, I, I was more on the authoring and publishing side than on the management side, but I'm really excited to bring those expertise here. So a lot of a lot of our listeners are bloggers, right? I think we have somewhere in the neighborhood of just under a thousand bloggers uh, that are in the blog stream planet V12N, or I forget what the name of that yep. is. Um, sure. Did I get it right? You V12N. Did. <laughs> nice. Planet I learned what that meant yesterday, yes. by the way. Yes, you had a one-on-one -on -one with John Troyer. <laughs> I heard to get some history. Yeah. Uh, John built an original blogger program, and you've come in now. We really haven't had anybody full time on the blogger program, so it's just kind of moved along. So uh, I know you got some things you're going to work on. Do you, do you have a, a, you know, a top one or two items that you, you're going to find interesting? Um, well, really excited to reconnect with a lot of the bloggers um, and kind of figure out a way for our relationship to be more mutually beneficial, make sure that we're getting um, good exposure to our bloggers whom we love. So um, excited to, to get out there and meet some people. 
Okay, good. I know we're, we're working on the stream itself, trying to optimize the stream, do some work on all the blogs that are in the stream. That's, that's one that should be interesting. And then, uh, and then kind of a, a, as you join that stream, what can we do for you? Get to know you, keep track of everybody that's in the stream, and then go back and look through the stream and see how relevant all the blogs are in the stream. Some of those bloggers have been in the stream for years, and we haven't really looked to see how accurate are they blogging about VMware products any longer, right? So if you if you follow that, I think we have maybe thirty thousand followers on that stream. You know how good is the content that you know you're 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 going through the RSS you know mm -hmm. reader and looking at that stream? How 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 optimized is that content? So yeah, absolutely. There's a bit of cleanup that needs to happen, but we're uh, diving right in. Perfect. Now, when you talk to John Troyer on the brand of the stream, uh, yeah. was the brand, did it make sense? Yeah. Do you want yeah. to give some history? Here, 30 seconds, uh, bring everyone up to speed, because we spent a long time trying to figure out what planet V12N means. And so um, what John explained was that V12N actually stands for virtualization. So you just take the letters out in the middle, make it a number, and so it's starts with me, ends and end, virtualization. Um, the planet part goes back to, I think he was talking about um, when blogging first got started, how uh, blogs that people would contribute to in groups would be called planets, so people would get together and, and share information that way. So planet be 12 n that's where the meaning comes from. Got it. See, I always thought 12N was some kind of international localized, you know, 18N or localized content strategy. Like, and I wasn't sure what. So 12 characters between V and N is just virtualization. Correct. Yep. Got it. And then planet is just where people congregate. Exactly. <laughs> Essentially. Great, great. Well, I'm sure we'll come up with a better name. Maybe we'll rebrand that or something and come up with something that people can understand. But it's, a, it's great. I know we haven't pushed that brand for a long time, but I know there's 30,000 followers, and it's great to have you on board. Yep, absolutely. All right. Well, uh, I think that's it for the news. Anybody else on the call have something? I'll look in the chat room. So if anybody wants to make any announcements, it is a community roundtable. Before we get started with submit. Dead airspace. Yeah. Going once. Everybody's just happy with everything, right? Nobody <laughs> has anything to announce. Sometimes we do the VMUG announcements, but not today. So, Sumit, um, welcome to the show. Um, Senior Product Manager of vSAN Core Software. Um, thanks for being on the show. Um, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about um, who you are, how long you've been at VMware. Uh, what have you worked on in the past and other places? Just give people, you know, audience members that are listening a little snapshot of who you are. Sure. Thanks, Eric. So I've been at VMware almost close to two years. And, uh, you know, I was uh, looking at the hyperconverged infrastructure space at NetApp. Uh, I was working in the office of the CTO. My day job was talking to all the startups and trying to figure out if we have any good, uh, you know, investment or acquisition opportunities. So kind of looking at that space for some time, and of course, vSAN was a natural choice. Uh, before that, I, I essentially uh, was uh, doing product management roles within NetApp for some time, uh, converge infrastructure, so on and so forth. And more interestingly, prior to NetApp, I was at eBay for about close to six years. And uh, what was interesting about that stint was it was an early you know, uh, evolution of how uh, things are happening today. And I say that because uh, eBay at that time was trying to 
essentially scale out and they had a lot of uh, you know seasonalities of traffic and they were trying to figure out how they can manage all, all of that seasonality that you know companies are facing today with most of the channels being online and we got a fair glimpse of those problems early on and that's back in 2007 so i was in ebay for about 6 years you know i was uh, doing mostly technical product management uh, trying to figure out how you build scale out platforms you know services uh, so very interesting experience there and i look at a lot of that and i see that companies are trying to exactly you know try and mimic a lot of those uh, uh, capabilities around uh, you know how can i provision things faster how can i be more agile uh, how can i react to business faster so things like that So prior prior to that, you know, mostly engineering roles, you know, building enterprise applications, and eventually uh, going full circle back. And uh, you know, uh, I realized that probably it's a good time for me to uh, focus back on product management. So kind of nice, nice, nice history, good experience. I have some friends that work at eBay. Um, it seems like they're multi. You know, they run vSphere, they run uh, uh, open source. Uh, Uh, OpenStack, a little bit mixture of that, and a handful of products. I think they have some Solaris and Sun Microsystems boxes in there. So I think I think there's a, a a lot of different aspects. And how big are they? They have like hundreds of thousands of servers, right? Right, right, right. And uh, yeah, again, uh, my my uh, I was there till 2012. So you know, back then we had about 20, 25,000 servers just to manage the. You know, used to call those front-end servers, and their whole purpose was to be able to uh, manage all of the incoming traffic that's coming on eBay. And then we had uh, bare metal servers for search, uh, and then we had other you know systems for mostly internal applications and systems, but primarily search and you know all the front-end traffic. Those are the key applications that uh, eBay was dependent on. Most of the revenue implications would be if your search doesn't work, or you are on the site and you know you you can't. Uh, browse the site or you can look at items so those two uh aspects were uh the front end and the search were critical and then we had payment processing we had shipping so all of those are kind of logistic services which were equally critical but uh yeah so big infrastructure a lot of servers uh you almost were uh trying to build uh, a, we're trying to build a lot of automation orchestration within us uh, within the within the company organically and at that point in time this is back in 2007 right i mean a lot of the products were not operating at that scale that were available through vendors and so we were primarily a vmware shop and then we were also trying to figure out how we can kind of uh build some aspects of uh, automation over and above that so yeah interesting times yeah interesting times and and did you start foreseeing or uh the 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 trend towards uh, hyperconverged you know infrastructure uh back then or were you kind of finding commonality between stacks of of hardware and software uh did did you see that happen or did you start seeing that happen when when you spent time more time in netapp well i think uh, the notion of web scale if you see the whole uh, if if you look at the early beginnings of uh, convergent hyperconvergence it was essentially uh being able to provide a scale out uh, uh web you know the terminology that was more oftenly coined was web scale and and the reason i think it was coined as web scale was trying to kind of 
uh, abstract all of that complexity that you have to design, you know, if you want to build that scale-out clustered system uh, into a set of, uh, into a software, and then that software essentially is the, you know, the essence of being able to scale out your storage and compute. So we were seeing that, that trend early on then, but that trend wasn't really prevalent in the uh, rest of the industry because mostly because and the business was still more um, driven through uh, traditional channel, channels. And now as more and more businesses uh, kind of are going online, they are, they, they, they are exposed to the same set of uh, capacity planning and, you know, infrastructure planning, provisioning, agility, all of those aspects that, you know, the online companies face. And if you, if you recall, that's why Amazon also kind of, you know, when they started thinking about AWS back in 2006, 2005, they were kind of in a similar situation. They were experiencing that, that uh, whole, uh, th those challenges with traditional vendors, right? And so we, we had the same experience. And to, to, to get back to your question, uh, I definitely think there were early uh, signs that things uh, may eventually shift in those, uh, you know, change paradigms in terms of how they're built and designed. But uh, it wasn't happening at the same scale that we see now. And it's primarily driven by more and more businesses being digitized and going online. Mm, interesting. That's really interesting, Samit. I, I think that a lot of... Um, technology that we're starting to see become common today, these ideas were uh, seen earlier or implied earlier, I think, as you said, um, at these early web scale companies. Right. Um, and, and then as some of those, that te those technical people, um, you know, left those companies, some of those ideas left those companies and started to permeate uh, the enterprise as well. So um, you, that's, you that's hit it on the nail. Exactly. And then, you know, I've seen my colleagues kind of moving it out to different companies and, even very traditional companies are espousing these ideas and they're trying to kind of, uh, you know, embrace the whole notion of scale-out, uh, uh, you know, deployments versus monolithic. And, and, and there's a reason behind that. And the reason is, you know, being ability, the ability to react to business at a much faster rate and being competitive, right? Because if you don't do that, you will essentially, your competition will. And so I think that's essentially driving a lot of the, the incentive behind hyperconvergence and ability to borrow those ideas and but make it simple, right? I mean that's what hyperconvergence hyperconvergence is also is trying to achieve. It's trying to take those borrow those ideas of web scale, simplify that, abstract that out, so you don't have to keep an army of people to develop all of these. Uh, the monitoring behind this, uh, scaling things out. So we really didn't have a clustered scale out system uh, at the scale that we talk about. Uh, with hype, uh, with HCI uh, before HCI, and I think that's what HCI's value proposition is: is giving you those tools and utilities, but without the complexity of, you know, having to build it organically. That makes sense. That makes sense. How, how, let me uh, ask one thing: you mentioned that you were at uh, NetApp in a couple different roles. Did you ever have exposure to their Evo Rail uh, product yes. while you were? Yes. Okay. Yes. Not directly, uh, but. Uh, because when Evo, Evo Oil started, I think right about that time, I joined the office of CTO, and uh, you know, uh, and uh, I was not in the product line, but of course, I was uh, speaking to folks who were trying to partner with VMware at that time. Uh, right, right. So it's interesting that that was, um, you know, the, the progenitor to the uh, the VX Rail 
appliance that we see now from Dell Technologies. Uh, we've gone from a multi-vendor to a to a single vendor model for that product, that appliance product. Right. right. I, I have one yep. more high-level question than that. When you were at eBay, what's the what's the duration that that servers last in racks before you have to you know re-up them? Is it three years? How long do do people actually run gear in the data center in in that high volume where you've got 25,000, 50,000 servers? Is it right. really a three-year refresh cycle, or what were you guys seeing then? So we we I think it depends on how hot you're running the servers. We had servers that we would refresh. 18, 24 months. There were some that would refresh in three years, but I haven't seen anything. Typically, 18 to 24 months was, um, you know, is, is a good marker for for most uh, cases where you know the those servers are essentially business critical, so you don't want them to fail. But there are some that you were probably okay with, you know, three years. But I haven't seen as far as five years, uh, specifically to the 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 workloads that you know we are looking at. I mean, there could be other like you know servers that are you know, file servers or things that are mostly for internal IT that could probably, you know, have longer shelf lives. But anything that was business-facing and uh, impacted the bottom line uh, and, that you know, it was something that we would refresh at into 24 months time frame. Yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting. I always wanted to check on that, and it was, it was interesting that you were there. So I always like to ask a couple of those questions just to get my bearings and stay straight on that. Um, Okay, uh, moving on then, uh, vSAN, you, you've joined the vSAN team. Obviously, you know, there's hyper-converged solutions with vSAN now that, that we're, we're offering or Dell is offering, uh, and you, you've transitioned into this role. Um, and now yep. we've, we just announced a new version of vSAN that has uh, native encryption embedded, and you've done a really nice blog article on that, and we thought we would do a shout-out to that, to that blog article. And then, you know, kind of go through the blog article. So to shout out the blog article, uh, you can go to blogs.vmware.com slash virtualblocks, and there are two articles right on the front page, uh, part one and part two of that you've written uh, around vSAN native encryption. So thought we would just talk, maybe you could take us through, you know, 6.6, introduce uh, native encryption. What's that about? Let's talk a little bit about that, and then we can go through you know what you're talking about in your 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 blog article. Sounds good. So uh, so I, I wrote this article because when we launched 6.6 uh, .6 and we talked about you know doing encryption fundamentally different from what's out there in the industry today, which is primarily based on you know hardware-centric self-encrypting drives or purpose-built controllers. This was a game-changing. Uh, offering from VMware in context to encrypting data at rest. And we have had precedence with VMcrypt, uh, which was launched at 6.5. So we were getting a lot of interest in, you know, what is, how can I use it? What are the different aspects of the product? Why should I care? And and I was kind of fielding a lot of those questions from customers and fields, and we were getting a lot of interest from uh, most of our big customers that, for them, you know, security is a key concern and a big, you know, big, big aspect of adoption. So that was kind of my motivation behind saying, okay, I mean, let's put all, all, all let's kind of put things in, in uh, on paper. Let's put, put, put a listing out, uh, a blog out there, so people can kind of look at it. And also, I was kind of trying to address two, uh, two, two sets of audiences here. One was 
people who are trying to look at the value proposition, you know, kind of figure out, okay, why should I care question, right? And then there were people who are, you know, system engineers who are, you know, tasked with setting this up, and they had a lot of questions around the fundamentals of how this has been implemented. Uh, we've had several blogs, if you if you if you if you if you go on the blog site, uh, that talk about you know setup and operations, and from a product management perspective, you know, I, I wanted to kind of, you know, we we have those details, but I wanted to kind of talk about things more from a fundamental perspective, right? What is happening? Uh, how we can how we're encrypting what are the different use cases that you should care about and one fundamental value proposition that we talk about encryption and I'll, uh, about vSAN encryption being done natively is simplicity of management and the thing with that word is that it gets used too often and it almost gets abused sometimes right so when you talk about simplicity of management you you know i felt it's important to be able to talk about things in context to how the workflow or the user experience has been built out, rather than kind of talking about it in some levels of abstractness. So that's why, you know, the second part is where I focused more on use cases and kind of, you know, how we set up the different key management, how do we set up the key management server, what happens if you pull disks out, what happens if a new host joins the cluster, things like that, which is more tuned for people who will be, you know, managing this, uh, who will be essentially uh, responsible for keeping it up, uh, monitoring it. Uh, so, so that's why I mean uh, that was the kind of the intent behind having two sets of blogs. And okay, that makes sense. Got it. So you got part one, business value, high you know, high level stuff, which we're looking at, which is kind of a nice you know you have v encryption at a glance, right? Where all the major components of it, which is kind of good to see. Um, when we talk about the feature of encryption that you mentioned, like I'm just curious how big a demand this was. Like, I remember when we did dedupe, right? Uh, when when vSAN picked up dedupe, that was like a, a turning point. It was a tipping point for us where before you had dedupe, nobody wasn't going to really consider you, right? Like, because you just had to double the storage or triple the storage. Um, how important was encryption? You, you know, was it, I'm sure it wasn't a tipping point. You did get some of our bigger customers if you're not using encryption, you know, if, if, and in this, this one blog, like, if you're not using encryption, is this something that you should really worry about? Is it something that you're missing the boat on? Or, you know, what's your feeling with regard to the adoption of this particular feature? So I think there are two perspectives, uh, two aspects to this. Uh, one is the real need to protect your data because of the sensitivity of the data that is residing on vSAN. And and we believe security is real. It's not something that, you know, we talk in the you know more in the abstract that hey, people are going to steal your data, you have to be careful. I mean that's not something it's no longer kind of a you know uh, I would say a selling motion. It's happening in it's it happens and people know that, right? And it is one of the concerns that we should be addressing. It's not like Hey, yes, you know, it, it don't happen to me, right? I think those days are gone. So one aspect is, you know, one thing is if you're putting sensitive data on any device for a long period of time, I think you need to look at security. Whether and encrypting data at rest is fundamental to that, right? I mean, you have to look at the other aspects of, uh, you know, the security from a 
end-to-end -end perspective, but encrypting data at rest is key. That being said, there are also requirements that are mandated by industry, that if you are putting data that are financially sensitive, that contain health records, or they contain uh, personally identifiable information, so this becomes more of a mandate that you have to follow. Even though, you know, you might assert that, hey, my data center is secure, you know, I've essentially made sure that, uh, you know, I control the access access points and, you know, but then, even then, you know, it's a mandate question. So I think both the aspects are important. If So in terms of selling a product, I think security is important in order to address customers that either need that because, uh, you know, they, they have a real uh, and uh, clear and real threat that they would like to protect against. It could be a compliance requirement. And so we want to essentially address both those aspects. Having said that, of course, you know, you could run uh, clusters that you choose not to encrypt because you essentially have firewalls within your data center or you're not mandated by compliance requirements to encrypt every uh, the data at rest. So it's an option for those, those use cases. But I think from a key feature perspective, I, would, I, I think encryption is going to become one of those you know, check boxes that most products should adhere to if they want to be enterprise grade. It's a really interesting uh, perspective that you're, you're, you're talking about, Samit, because we have all these software controls that you know, we as a company are, are bringing to, to bear on this problem, right? So uh -huh. uh, defense in depth, uh, from the network perspective, we have NSX and, and micro-segmentation to, to prevent people from uh, getting past uh, you know, network access. Uh, right. so, so we can stop it there. If for some reason they're able to, to penetrate or are able to get physical access to the actual uh, devices and, and pull the drives, now we're also saying, you know, hey, you got the physical hardware, but that's not good enough because it's all encrypted and you can't have access to it anyway. Right, and and this is fundamental to how you know the industry looks at security. Right, it's all about making it harder for the adversary, and that word is something that's commonplace in security. The adversary, the guy who's trying to steal your data, making it harder, and you make it harder by putting in a gate at every step in the way. Right, so, and that's, and I think, at rest is critical because your data is sitting there maybe for months and years, right? And you don't want to expose that out, assuming that yes, you are protected at the network layer, you are protected at the uh, at the firewall level, you are protected at the gateway level, uh, you're protected. But then you want to also be able to protect when you put it, put data on a cluster and you let it reside, sit there. And that's why, you know, we we, we believe that trust is critical uh, from that uh, uh, hardening perspective, making it harder for the adversary to take data. Uh, and at each step, we want to be able to provide uh, uh, crypto functions that they are not able to, you know, the data is not accessible. And that's applicable even uh, you know, outside address, but uh, since we are talking about native encryption address, I'm uh, pivoting around that more strongly. So, in, uh, you know, I'll, I'll move on here because we want to get to a couple other things as well. Minimum impact of CP performance, you talk about that in your blog, and you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about uh, AES uh, yeah, 
done inside the, the chip, right? Do you want to take a moment just to kind of, the people that are listening that haven't looked at the blog yet, uh, why don't we talk just a minute or two about AES and what Intel's done there? Well, when we started talking about encryption in software, the key, you know, one of the primary concerns was that's great, that's awesome, but, you know, what is it going to, what's the CPU hit that I have to take if I run encryption in software? Because okay. encryption is a pretty, you know, compute intensive uh, your uh, operation because you are running uh, the AES 256-bit crypto. And what we have done is, and this is something that's available through Intel, is you can offload those processing from running it to the Intel, to the Intel chip. And, and if you do that, it makes a significant impact to the performance implication. Uh, you know the overhead that your uh, your crypto software is going to take up. So that's why we always recommend that you go to the BIOS and you enable what we call as AESNI. And you know I've provided link in the blog that talks about that in more detail on the Intel site. But it essentially is an offload mechanism that Intel provides for running uh, for offloading your crypto crypto operations to the Intel uh, processor. And that doing that, we see about five to fifteen percent uh, overhead uh, that uh, you know your CPU is going to take up if you run encryption purely uh, on the software stack. And this is huge because we have been talking to our customers, and they were kind of <laughs> looking at much higher overheads. And and when we told them it's around this, you know, five to fifteen, they were kind of very, very, uh, they're amazed because, you know, essentially we're giving them all the benefits of managing this with minimal, you know, overhead to, uh, to CPU. And, uh, yeah. Nice. Yeah, like it. And so there's the, the value proposition here is instead of having to, to buy self-encrypting drives at whatever overhead that, you know, that cost is, and then at a hardware refresh, buying them again, and at the next hardware refresh, buying them again, you're buying buying the product that does this one time in software, and then buying the exact same commodity drives uh, for a regular vSAN. Am I right about yeah, that? And, yeah, exactly. And you know that's why I was trying to find a a good term to define that, and I, I talk about it as now and ever after because what ends up happening is uh, with SCDs or any any crypto that's offloaded to the hardware, you have controller-based, uh, you know, cryptos as well. Uh, I'm using the word crypto and encryption inter interchangeably, but uh, uh, just because I'm used to. But uh, coming back to the, the point, what happens is, you know, anytime you change the firmware of the driver, right, I mean, uh, of, the, of the device, excuse me, then you probably need to, uh, you know, go through a whole rekey process because, uh, uh, you know, you are essentially tampering with software on the data path, right? And uh, also, uh, you know, you probably need to go through a recertification process as well because now you've changed the driver or the firmware of the device. And, and that is key. I thought about right? that. That's a really good point. If you're changing the firmware on self-interpreting drives, you really need to examine whether you need to rekey. That's, that's overhead in the process that I never thought about that. You know, much yeah. less the interaction between your storage controllers and, and the drive. Yes, and, and, and a lot of environments have such, uh, you know, strict compliance that they will mandate you to go through a recertification process because, 
they want to make sure that hasn't exposed any vulnerabilities, uh, and which is, I think, the right thing to do. So when you now, take when, that complexity yeah. out, you're you're also removing a point of uh, fragility, right? It's it's less your system is less fragile when you when you do it in software rather than yes, uh, exactly. And I think it it comes down to that, right? And I kind of when I talked about the EV experience and when I talked about public clouds and, you know, I think the key is agility today, right? I mean, people are, they want to have the same value proposition, you know, security, they want to, but they want to also not uh, be limited in agility by doing that, by doing that, right? So it's not like, hey, you can be secure, but it'll take you three months or four months to get the system up and running. So you want to be secure, but you want to be able to maintain your time to value and your agility at the same time. And that's where I think software-based approaches are going to be more efficient. Nice. Yeah. So uh, get, getting to your second drill down on the article, which, I, which your second post really takes us through kind of what I would need to do to get this set up, right, and the big block items. And I know we're on a podcast, so everybody has to visualize what we're going to talk about next. But I think it's worth spending a little time on this second log post because it's it does take you down into the nitty-gritty of what you need to do. So the first thing that you cover is the three key components, right, which is the KMS, uh, vCenter, and the vSAN host, right, and how those three interact. So maybe you can take a moment talking about that, and then we'll move to uh, some of the permissions and the, how, the, how, you, how it rolls that upgrade when it needs to format the disk. So why don't we talk about the three things first, which is the key management server, vCenter and uh, vSAN host, right? Yeah, sure, Eric. So for vSAN uh, encryption, the three entities that participate, is the key management server, the SXI host that's running vSAN, and then the vCenter, the three entities. The key management server, for those of us who may not be intimately familiar with, is essentially the guy, the, the entity that's, responsible for providing the, the primary key. We call as the key encryption key or the key wrapping key. So this is the key that is, think of it as a primary key, and we'll talk about that in more detail, what primary key means. And what you want to do is, before you, in, in any, any kind of a secure setup, you essentially go through a process wherein you say these parties have the right credentials and they can trust each other. And what we call as, you know, the domain of trust. Because what that means is these parties are eligible to exchange confidential information that can help them, you know, get access to the data. So that's the first step. You essentially are creating a domain of trust between the key management server, which is responsible for you know, uh, the, the, the primary key. It, it essentially, that's the, uh, that's the entity that gives the primary key, the vCenter and the SXI host. So this process essentially follows the standard public key infrastructure mechanism of managing digital certificates. I haven't gone into that. That's a topic into itself. But right, right. any, any, and this is not only just for the KMS setup. Any party that's essentially trying to talk over an untrusted network, it uses PKI. It's a pretty standard protocol, right? The whole uh, certificate exchange and a public key, private key. Uh, so that... Uh, that's what I mean here. Now, depending on who your KMS provider is, you may have different sets of procedural steps. Uh, 
But essentially, it means three things. It means that these three parties can trust each other. They have uh, credentials. And when they communicate, they essentially communicate using those credentials, which uh, grants them that privilege. That's what I kind of wanted to touch upon. Got it. Okay. So the, these three things are, are they're critical to the infrastructure, right? So you have your vSAN hosts, um, and we I think anybody getting into this probably has a pretty uh, good understanding of how to set those up. Is there overhead in setting up vCenter uh, in a separate domain maybe or off the encryption cluster? And the KMS, it looks like it shouldn't be in the same encryption cluster as it's managing the, the keys for, right? Yeah. So I think uh, vCenter is, you know, the sense of any operation that happens with VMware products, right? So it essentially uh, is almost like an independent observer that is orchestrating a lot of the workflows around exchange of keys between the vSAN host and KMS. So you have to set up vCenter irrespective of encryption, which is essentially our standard or de facto means of managing clusters, right? Your right. VR ops and other, other uh, product, but I'm just talking in terms of uh, vCenter is kind of the de facto uh, management plane, if you may. So you need to set up vCenter, whether you're encrypting the cluster or you're running it without encryption. The key management servers is the additional entity that we bring in because those are specialized uh, servers that have the security hardening baked into them and they can be run on platforms that are, you know, hardware platforms, or it could be run as a VM, depends on the customer. But those are essentially hardened to preserve the keys, they store the keys, they persist the keys, and they essentially uh, are third-party, uh, pro uh, you know, providers that provide the primary key. We cannot have a KMS within the entity that we are trying to encrypt, right? That will be a violation of... Uh, the fundamental premise of uh, security. So that's why KMS has to be a separate entity. You'd have a chicken uh, and egg problem there, right? If it, if yeah, you cannot run the KMS server within the vSAN cluster because if the KMS gets okay. compromised, then uh, you're going to compromise security. So you want to kind of take that out. Uh, you set that up separately. We set it up in a high availability mode. Uh, it's uh, like two KMS servers, like almost like setting up a load balancer. I kind of give that analogy a lot because load balancers are set up like that because they are critical. Similarly, like all the traffic is flowing through them. So similar to that, you set up KMS in a high, in a you know failover configuration. Moment one KMS, they are replicated both these servers, and if one goes down, uh, vCenter uh, will automatically pick up the other. So that's kind of a requirement if you don't want any disruption. But all okay. of that is detailed out in the KMS uh, vendor guides. And right. it's okay. orthogonal to the product. So we'll touch on a couple other things now. Uh, sure. so we got we got disk format change, right? And the, mm -hmm. the rolling upgrade component. I think that's fascinating that you know when you're when you're going into encryption, all of a sudden you're changing things on disks. And that always makes me a little bit nervous, right, as you transition to this. Uh, what's, that, what's that look like, and how, how risky is it? Well, when we uh, manage encrypted clusters, so it's not like, so what it means essentially is that we 
create a bunch of metadata on the disk which tells vSAN, hey, this is an encrypted cluster. Manage it differently from a regular cluster, right? So it'll tell you about membership relationships, what's the generation of key, things like that. So all this is uh, information that vSAN uses to manage an encrypted cluster. So we need to, we need to create a, sep a separate partition, if you may, that stores the encryption metadata, metadata information that is used for vSAN, by vSAN to manage these clusters. And right, so a separate partition, not, not rewriting your existing partition. You need both because one is essentially um, the, uh, the, yeah, like even with DDoP, you need it formatting, right? Yeah. Got it. And so that, yeah. And, how yeah, how disruptive is it to actually uh, add encryption? Uh, you know, the, the implication here being like, I already have like an all flash cluster. Um, mm -hmm. I want to add encryption to it. So I, I set up my, my KMS in an outside cluster. Um, how how disruptive is it? Do I need to take it offline over a weekend or over a long week to 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 get everything encrypted? What's the great what's the question? And, yeah, and and that's why I put this blog in because these are the kind of questions we get asked all the time, right? So so essentially, if you have data already in a cluster that you're running and you say, hey, I want I need to encrypt this cluster, you probably should uh, you know ensure that you have some capacity headroom. Because, like I said, when you start, uh, when you check the encryption box in, what it first, what vSAN first does is it says, "Hey, do I have data on this cluster?" Right? right. So it knows that because it's managing the data, so it knows if there's data on the cluster or not. And if there is data, what what it will try and do is it'll essentially move the data out, and that's why you probably should maybe add another host or make sure that you have some headroom available, at least a disk group worth of data, right? So you move the data out. From the 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 so it'll essentially start doing it on a rolling basis. It'll say, hey, let's start with the first host, let's start with the disk group within that host, and then it's going to move the data out from that disk group to any other available disk in the cluster. It is going to format that those devices in the disk group, and then pull data back in. And so it'll keep on doing that on a rolling basis until the entire cluster is encrypted, which means every disk essentially has been uh, stamped with the encryption uh, flag, um, encryption metadata. And so once so you, it you goes to... Said, you never said uh, to take anything offline in that entire process. No, so that no, no. Done off, rolling online. Yes, yes. That's but here's the thing, here's the thing. You know, here's the thing which is important uh, to keep in mind is you cannot treat that cluster as encrypted at that point, right? Because when you say something is encrypted, when we say vSAN cluster is encrypted, when you that means every device or every disk is encrypted in that cluster. So in this state of when it's reformatting on a rolling basis, there'll be some devices that are encrypted, some are not encrypted. So you cannot assume encrypt, uh, you, you won't flag that as an encrypted cluster until the whole process completes. So, right. so there is no disruption. You have to yeah. wait the amount of time that it would take to read every bit, encrypt it, and then write it on a separate on one of the new disk groups. You can't just check the box and say, "Oh, it's all done." Like you, you have to wait for that rolling process to actually finish. Yeah, wait for the data to be moved out and written back in. And when it gets written back in, it's encrypted. Got it. Got it. 
And of course, you have to set up the KMS before that. So vSAN knows that this is the KMS I need to talk to. I can get the primary keys from this KMS and you know, so on and so forth. Is the sanity check for extra space uh, a process that, that vSAN will do for me as a user, or does uh, do I need to, to do some math ahead of time and make sure that I have an extra disk group's worth of uh, capacity first? Well, that's why you have this option here that says reduced uh, redundancy. There's a checkbox here if you kind of look at that. Uh, uh, so what it basically means is that when you set up vSAN, if you have existing data, you say, hey, I want this many replicas for additional data protection. So it'll tell you, if you check that box, what it does is it says, okay, I, I'm going to essentially move data, but I don't have to be compliant to make sure that I maintain the replicas while I'm going through this format process. These are small clusters where you may not have enough capacity headroom. You check that box in. It check that box, and that'll ensure that uh, your uh, it, you 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 essentially be temporarily out of compliance while it's reformatting. And that's a choice we leave it to the customer, right? Small clusters, right. you do that. If you want to maintain redundancy, yes, you probably should be. Uh, and vSAN will warn you that hey, I cannot move data because I don't have capacity. Got it. Okay, that that's what I was looking for. It and. And I think that that makes sense, but you know, it also might make sense to look from uh, go from failures to tolerate two to failure to tolerate one mm -hmm. while I'm doing this process, and 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 that's just a, a risk management um, examination that each customer needs to look at uh, while they're going through this process, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and that can just be, um, you know, if they don't want to add desk, extra disk uh, during this process, then that's fine. You can take down the the, the failures to tolerate, but if if you're you have enough capacity or you you, you can accept the risk, then uh, then you go the other direction. Exactly. Nice. 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 Uh, running at the top of the hour, though, um, looks like host reboots. This I gotta say, your blog article is a is a great article because it drills down just enough to give you the whole picture of what you have to do step by step. Gives you a nice diagram. So. If people listen to this podcast, I definitely highly recommend going back and looking at it because you know it, it really is a, a, a beautiful document in taking you through the high-level steps you need to do. Talks a little bit about you know changing your key server, uh, so you have some kind of edge cases you have to do. You talk about host reboot at, at the end of the process. You give me a nice five-step process of what has to happen you know to to enable this, and then at the end you reboot reboot your host. You reboot all the hosts that are connected to storage or is it just the uh, CSX? I, I'm wondering what what has to be. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, sure. I think I think the intent I had for this was when you're running encrypted, uh, when you run vSAN, you know, let alone encryption, you know, hosts can reboot. I mean, this is the natural, you know, right. uh, how servers work, right? And we are trying to put storage on these. So if you have an encrypted cluster and the host reboots, what will happen is going to essentially power off, power on, and try to join the cluster back, right? So we kind of make this completely seamless and come alluding back to the point I made about simplicity of management and we're kind of giving you some real examples of how we simplify management by taking specific instances uh, wherein host reboots can happen, right? So right. with encryption, vSAN encryption, you don't have to worry about, you know, host joining back into the cluster because it's all seamless. You doesn't need any user intervention. 
Uh, it'll connect to the KMS server. And we also talk about what it does because not just saying, hey, it's seamless, we're telling our customers why is it seamless, right? And it's seamless right. because it connects to the KMS, gets the key, boots the disk up, and then we also talk about some edge cases. What happens? You you change the key, for instance, right? When you hosting, when, when the host reboots, it's going to get the old key. It's going to uh, you know boot up, and then it'll be told by vCenter, hey, you have an older generation of the key, things like that, and it'll automatically get the new key from KMS, and then everything will be fine. So I just nice. wanted to kind of show how you simplified the operations by putting everything on the software stack. That's that's great. I, I it's interesting because when I read that host reboot section, I read it as a uh, necessary part of of adding it to adding a host to an encrypted cluster. But really, you're just talking about the edge case, which is not an edge case. It's quite a common case of host rebooting and why that's safe and and why it doesn't cause a disruption. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's that common, but when you talk about encryption. Uh, in security, you want to essentially make sure you cover all aspects of things that can happen, right? Host right. and reboot. So, how do you make it easy for you? So, that was that was the intent. Well, Samit, uh, I think it. I think I love the article. Uh, I know that uh, Noel from CloudCred uh, is uh, promoting it on CloudCred. Go go check it out, read it, listen to it. I think it's I think it's cool. It's great to have you on the show and just walk through the, the blog article. I know it takes a lot of time to author these things and then and publish them. So thanks a lot for, for working on, on that. It's a, it's a great document. Um, and then also vSAN's growing at like 150% per year, quarter by quarter, whatever. It's like, it's fantastic. So thanks to the success of your product. And I know you're on the core product. So congratulations to that too. You're, you're doing really well with your products. You should be proud. Thank you, and I appreciate uh, having being uh, invited on this. It's a good uh, opportunity for us to talk about our product as well. Yeah, yeah, and uh, if they want to follow you, are you on Twitter? Are, are you somebody that uh, do you blog any place else, or is it just on VirtualBox? And uh, how do people follow you? I'm on Twitter, and uh, you know, Vsan is you know we. <laughs> Are extremely, you know, occupied. So I definitely am trying to find more time to blog. Something that I've kind of made a conscious decision to do more often. But uh, mostly virtual blogs, and uh, you know, may, I'm thinking of putting a few posts on Medium. But I don't have a site of my own yet. But maybe someday. So what's your Twitter handle? Can we can we give that out? Yes, yes. Uh, it's at the rate my last name Lahiri, and then uh, four ones eleven eleven. At the rate Lahiri eleven eleven. So. All right, at Lahiri. We got to get that spelling. L a h i r i. Yeah, I thought it wasn't that hard, but you know, I now probably have to change that. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I think it's a good brand, Lahiri. <laughs> Lahiri, yes. One, 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 yeah. one, four ones. Four ones is harder than your name, right? Just saying. It's like look, they, when he, when we get older, and I'm I'm blind, and I'm looking at a bunch of ones in a row. I'm not yep. sure how many are actually there, but um, but you got it. You you own that one. No one else is going to want that because because that was awesome. It. Yeah, and it was hard the getting one. One, so. one, one, one on that. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't mix it with L's and I's. So like, that, I'm that, very happy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You could have put it. You know, you could put some zeros in there there that are really O's. That way, it'll be really hard for 
people to get. But you got it. You got it. Really, it's, it's great. We like to have a lot of fun. Thank you for telling us about your history, too. That's really cool. You're at eBay. Uh, are, do you get to go to VMworlds? I know we we, we capped this, but if you're yeah, at we have. Uh, I have two sessions there. One is on encryption, so we're going to go even more deeper in that session. So we will talk about, you know, uh, we'll start with, you know, what cryptography is. We'll kind of get into crypto, and then we'll get into, you know, Visa and encryption. So people will get a holistic overview. If they attend my session, I'm uh, doing it with one of our uh, engineers. Uh, who have, since, have you memorized? Yeah. Your, have you memorized your session number yet? I haven't. <laughs> I wish. I wish you told me before. I would have looked it up. But you can look up. Look it up by your name, L A H I R A. They have a great. Uh, they great search. So no, people can find that. So no, it's L A. It's a L A H I R I, not a R I. L A H I R I Lahiri. Yes. Yep, and so look you up. Uh, go, you got two sessions. That's awesome. If you get a chance, come by the the VMCN community booth. We'll be all there. The bloggers will be there. Come say hello. You're a blogger. We we'll get you a blogger sticker and some some other good stuff. So, cool stuff. Oh, I love to. I love to. Absolutely. John, I'll let you have the last word. Oh yeah. So I actually found out that I'm going to be working the uh, the hands-on labs for for sure in the afternoons. So I'll have my mornings free if uh, and I'll try to come by the uh, VMCN uh, communities. Uh, and and catch some brown bag v brown bag session. I I'm gonna try to I'll ask around and see if a v brisket is there. I'm gonna bring real brisket. All right. Well, we we're at the top of the hour. We're actually over a few minutes. So thanks for hanging in there, guys. Uh, appreciate it. And I can't hit the big green or red stop button on the podcast because my Mac is is is, is hung here. So uh, we're we're not going to do that. We're just going to hang up, and it will auto it'll auto end the podcast. So dude, you should have gotten a Dell. Yeah, I should have. You know what? I, don't get me started. I've seen some Dell reviews, and I'm this close to moving to a, a year old Dell. Some of the year old Dells are still good, and I don't know Apple. I'm on an old Mac, but the new OS. I'm not certain. I might go back. I think I might go back to the new Dells. All right. Yeah, yeah. All we right. got some pretty nice machines with really good reviews. So uh, we'll go there. Smith, thanks a lot. Thanks for everybody in the chat. Thank you, folks. Uh, we'll we'll see you again next week. I'd hang out and talk after the podcast, but the only way we're going to end this is to hang it up. So we're hanging up now. We'll see you again next week. Yeah. Bye, guys. Thanks.